official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Well, last Sunday, I was sitting in the back. I didn't have to, to preach last Sunday. And I was sitting in the back, and I was a little bit surprised when Ian sh- sh- asked the question. He said, how many people here like maps? And I was sitting in the back, and I saw all these hands go up. And I was just surprised, thinking, whoa, we have a, want, a lot of people who want to be cartographers, and they love maps. I, I had no idea. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I showed you guys a map as we were walking through Acts 13 and 14. I showed you a map of Paul's first missionary journey. How many were here a couple weeks ago when I showed that map? And today I have another map to show as we go through Acts 17. And this is Paul's second missionary journey, at least most of it. It has the three primary cities that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 17. But before we jump into the text and we look at this map and we look at some of the other pictures we have that kind of correlate with Acts 17 this morning, I want to share another mission trip story of my own. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Paul's first missionary trip, I shared a story of how I took a, a team of teenagers to the Dominican Republic and we spent some time in this remote jungle village and I shared with you the story of eating chicken foot soup and, and building a, a schoolhouse for them and watching the little village children eat candy for the very first time, and then sharing Jesus with a group of people who had never heard about him. And it was a really fantastic, fantastic trip. Well, a couple years after that trip, I got to go on another mission trip, but this one was very different from that one. This, this one was in a city called Cali, Colombia, how many of you are familiar with Cali? Most people, when you say Cali, Colombia, the familiarity that comes up is that it's, it's famously known for being the home of Pablo Escobar, right? The Colombian drug lord, who, by the way, was the wealthiest criminal in history. He, it's estimated his net worth was $30 billion. Um, and I had the opportunity when I was there to drive by his house and all the other cartel. They all lived on the same kind of row and neighborhood. And it was so eerie as we were driving through there because everything was just vacant and in, in like a ghost town because the, the empire, the cartel had, had fallen and crumbled. But there was all of this money, all of this empire that they built, this, this fast kind of drug money. And driving through that neighborhood and down the street and seeing where they lived was, had this kind of eerie feeling like this is what happens when we try to build empire, right? When we try to... to consume things for ourselves. I don't think I'll forget that feeling driving down the road. Well, the church that I was working with down in Cali, they had just lost their pastor two years previous to my visit uh, because he had been shot and killed by a neighbor. They, they had a, a land dispute. The, the pastor owned a piece of property, which his house was on, and he built a church, which was really not a a church in the sense that we know it was four cement pillars with a concrete slab and a roof on it. So it was an open-air church. And the neighbor uh, accused him of infringing a few feet on his property, which, of course, was false. He, he didn't. He kept it on his property. But that didn't stop this dispute. And so the neighbor hired a hitman, 
and had the pastor shot in cold blood in the middle of the street in the morning one day. And so his wife was, was pastoring the church, and also this neighbor hired a hitman to try to kill his wife and his two daughters um, unsuccessfully. And all three times I was at this church in Columbia, they had 24-hour around-the-clock guards on the property. And I met one of the guards and had a conversation with him. He had a fraction of a bullet still lodged in his neck from when he was shot guarding the property. And I had never been to a place like that. I remember my, my children were little, and I didn't even want to tell Michelle, like, you know, the details of where, where I was going. And it was a very different experience than my previous mission trip to the Dominican Republic. In fact, every mission trip I've gone on ha has been a unique experience. And I share that to say this, that the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey was very different than his first missionary journey. A couple weeks ago, we looked at his, some of his first trip in Acts 13 and 14, and we read about it and kind of unpacked that. In Acts 17, when we go into his second trip, it's, it's very different from the first one, and here's why. Because every city has its own unique qualities, right? The three cities we're going to look at this morning are Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Those are the three primary stops in chapter 17. We'll spend the majority of our time looking at his trip to Athens, but we'll also quickly look at his stops in Thessalonica and Berea. But here's what I want us to do as we walk through this. I want us all to take notice of how unique each one of these stops are. That each city is a different city, it has different people, different circumstances, different situations, different cultures, different backgrounds. And, and notice this too, when Paul and Silas go to these cities, what you're going to find is that how they interact with people and how they preach about Jesus changes from city to city. So pay attention to that as we go through. Um, last week, Ian covered Acts 16, which ends with Paul and Silas in this city called Philippi. And from there, they travel to Thessalonica, which is about 60 miles. Do we have the map up there? There we go. So last week in Acts 16, we were in Philippi, and then they travel about 60 miles uh, west of Philippi to Thessalonica, and we'll pick up in verse 2 of chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. It's interesting here that Luke, who's the author of Acts, he says this, some of the Jews believed, a large number of Greeks believed, and quite a few prominent women. He makes it a point to include this info about leading prominent women. Macedonian women had a well-earned reputation for uh, their independence and entrepreneurial spirit. It's worth noting, and it's really interesting, in Acts 16, remember, Ian showed us this last week, when Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man, it says, calling him to Macedonia. And he says, we got to go to Macedonia. There's this man. I had a vision of this man. It's interesting because when they get to Macedonia, we're not told if he ever meets this guy. In fact, instead, what we find out is the, the, the first person mentioned that he meets in Macedonia is this woman named Lydia, and she runs a clothing business. 
And she and these other ladies who are praying down by the river become very influential in, in planting the church in Philippi. And so back to Thessalonica, it says many people believed. Some Jews, a bunch of God-fearing Greeks, and some prominent leading women. But, like his other cities, a few of the people were unhappy with the gospel message. They did not like what, what Paul and Silas were saying. And so Acts 17 tells us that they, the people who were upset went to the mar- marketplace to round up it says bad characters. I don't know what bad characters are, but they sound pretty bad. And, and they round up some bad characters to try to run Paul and Silas out of town. And so they assemble this mob and the city's in an uproar. And they decide, let's go find Paul and Silas and we'll bring them to the magistrates. Well, they can't find them. So what they do is they go to one of the new converts' house, and his name was Jason, and they dragged him before the magistrates. And in verse 6, it says this, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. They've come to Thessalonica. And they're staying at Jason's house. And so here's this poor guy. He's new, new to following Jesus. He just gets dragged out. Paul and Silas are nowhere to be found, and he's dragged out before the magistrates, and everybody's angry with him and upset because this, it, says, it says in verse 6 and 7 that the city officials and crowd they were thrown into turmoil because they were fearful that Paul and Silas' message would garner the unwanted attention of Rome. They said this, that these two men, they're proclaiming another king. Not Caesar, someone else. They say his name is Jesus. And they're causing all kinds of problems and they're going to get the attention of Rome and we're going to be done for. And so the city's in an uproar. So what happens uh, is that night Paul and Silas snuck out and they went to the next city called Berea. So we can put the map back up if we can. Berea is about 40 miles southwest of Thessalonica. In verse 11, it says this. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I want you to notice something about that verse. These two cities are only 40 miles away from each other, but they're very different experiences because they're different cities, they're different people, they're different backgrounds. It says here that that when they got to Berea, the folks were more open-minded. They examined the scriptures daily. They wanted to investigate and find out for themselves. When, When Paul was in Thessalonica, it says he reasoned with them, he explained it, he proved it. But when he gets to Berea, they're like, let us look for ourselves. We want to dig into this and look at it. And I think that as a pastor, Paul and Silas must have been thrilled with this. I know for me as a pastor, I love it when people are suspicious of what I say. I know that sounds kind of weird for a pastor to say. But man, I'm t- I really believe this, that we, we have too many churches where people come to church and they listen to someone teach and preach and they just assume that everything they're saying is accurate and true. And that's how these crazy cults get started, right? I love the Berean trip because Paul says he's preaching, he's teaching, and they're like, yeah, we need to look into this for ourselves. Give me the scriptures. I'm going to look at this every day. Let's see what you're saying is true. See, I love it when people take what I preach and teach with a grain of salt, and then they go look to the scriptures for themselves because that's one of the ways we grow in our knowledge of God, right? We take ownership and we discover ourselves, well, I better, I better check that what Adam's saying is, is accurate here. 
I'm going to have to read this chapter a few times and look over it. And I think we can learn something from the Bereans that we should never blindly trust what someone else is teaching from Scripture. Uh, we should investigate it for ourselves. It's one of the ways we grow in our knowledge of God. Well, what happens in Berea is as soon as the troublemakers in Thessalonica that ran them out of town hear that they're in Berea, they're like, we got to go help our Berean friends out and run them out of that town. And so sure enough, they run over to Berea and they cause another riot and cause all kinds of trouble. And so what happens is Paul leaves to go to Athens. But he tells his friends, Silas and Timothy, who's there in Berea now, he goes, you guys stay here, get this all sorted out. As soon as you can come and join me, please do. I'm going to go ahead. And so Paul kind of jets. He goes to Athens. Silas and Timothy are, are still in Berea. And while Paul's waiting for his friends to arrive, he does some sightseeing of the city. Again, this is going to be a very unique city. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. So Oropagus, of course, is also known famously as Mars Hill. It's a place where the Athenians would get together and they would discuss justice and philosophy and religion. It was kind of like an outdoor courtroom or council of sorts. I've got a couple pictures of, of what the Oropagus kind of looked like and Mars Hill looked like. The first one you can see is kind of just like this mound of rock, and that's Mars Hill. And you can see Athens kind of in the background, and there's a little staircase over here to get up there, and that's where they would kind of discuss religion and philosophy and justice. Then another picture after it is from a different angle. You can see Mars Hill down at the bottom of the screen here. And in the back, you see the Parthenon um, and the Acropolis. The Parthenon, of course, was a, a a temple that was built for the Greek goddess Athena. And so you can imagine Paul kind of having this debate with the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he's on this hill. And, the, and this is kind of his environment and what's going on around him. Now, this is also important to note that Greece was not the world power at the time Rome was. And Rome allowed the... Athenians to kind of maintain their own institutions and councils. They actually appreciated the Greek culture and, and what was there. And so they gave them freedom to kind of continue that and even celebrated it. And again, I want us to notice something. Think of yourself in Paul's shoes. How different is this city than the last one he was at? In Thessalonica, he's proving and he's reasoning and he's, he's teaching them about Jesus. There's some prominent women there who believe. And then he goes to Berea, and they're just eagerly like diving into the scriptures themselves. They want to know if this guy's square, if, he's, if, he, if what he's saying is true. 
And then he comes to Athens, and, and when he gets to Athens, verse 21 of the same chapter says this, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. And so this is a different city. They're all engaged in culture and philosophy and religion. And Paul has never been to a place like this. This is a very unique setting for him. And so it says he reasoned in the synagogues, he reasoned in the marketplace daily, and some Epicurean and, and Stoic philosophers start debating with him. Now, Epicureans primarily believed that, that pleasure and tranquility were, were life's greatest aims, that if you could be free from pain, that, that, that would be a great pursuit. Um, they also believed that the gods took little to no interest in humanity. And the Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They believed that, that God isn't so much a personal being, but the universe itself is God. And self-sufficiency was kind of like the highest good for a Stoic. And so the Epicureans and the Stoics would kind of debate with each other. They didn't always agree with one another, but they agreed on one thing, and that was that Paul's message of the gospel uh, seemed unrealistic because he was preaching about Jesus and resurrection, and neither of those groups believed in resurrection. It was believed among many of the, the people at Athens that Apollo, the god, uh, one of the gods they worshipped, uh, once said that when a man dies, his blood goes into the ground, there is no resurrection. And here comes Paul, and he's saying, yes, there's a resurrection. And so these, both of these groups are, are kind of thrown off by that. So they take Paul to the council, and it's not a friendly invitation. It's not like, hey, you're saying some really interesting things. We'd love to hear more. It's, it's more like, hey, we're trying to protect the, the level of intellectual conversation on this hill, and you're saying some crazy things, and we need to take you to the council to make sure that you're not, like, dumbing us down. And so they bring Paul to this council. And I, I got one more picture, and I'll show you kind of where, oh, you can't really see it. Okay, well, anyway, there's a staircase coming down here from, from the hill, and then there's this kind of like stone area, which would be like the council area, the court area. And over to the right, you can't see it, but there's a little bronze inscription in the rock, and that is an inscription of Paul's sermon. In Acts chapter 17, it's still there to this day, so if you ever go there, you can kind of read it and read this sermon. And in this short nine-verse sermon, Paul covers some serious ground. He's going to talk about who God is, humanity, salvation, resurrection, judgment. He even quotes a few of Greek philosophers and poets in this sermon, which again is, is really unique. Let's, let's pick up and just look at a few more verses. Verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now that sounds really rude when you read it, like, whoa, he just called them ignorant. But you have to understand that in this kind of setting, it, 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 if you tried to butter up the people that you were trying to convince with an argument, they would dismiss you immediately. There was no room for that. And so he's not trying to butter and fluff it up. He's trying to say, I have a very, very different uh, set of circumstances I'd like to propose and show you. And he says, in a way, you're worshiping God, but you're oblivious to who he is and, and what he's done, what he's doing. You have some inkling that he exists. You, I saw this inscription that you guys worship this unknown God. So you're aware of his existence, but 
you don't know him, and your worship is kind of blind toward him, so I'm going to tell you about him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He, he, he's, he's saying here that God isn't needy like you're portraying him, like all these other gods. He doesn't need temples and sacrifices and religious activities. He's sufficient in and of himself. That's what Paul's saying. Now, understand he's speaking to Stoic group of people, right? And the Stoics believed that self-sufficiency was a primary aim in life. And so he's speaking their language in a sense. He's saying God is the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need all of these temples. And he's probably pointing right to the Parthenon and all these things around. He, he doesn't need all this like you, you portray. In fact, he's self-sufficient. And where our sufficiency comes from him, he provides everything that we need. And then in verse 26, he says this little statement, from one man, he made all the nations. Now we can read that and be like, oh yeah, sure. But understand that to this group he was speaking, that had significance because the Athenians believed that they came from the dirt, from the ground of a special place called Attica. And they believed that they were a superior race to all the other barbaric races. And so Paul is challenging this. I love this. It's so interesting because he's saying, hey, no, that's not true. We're all created by God, and we all come from the same ancestor. Here's what's amazing to me. Paul's giving a nine-verse presentation of the gospel, and he includes racism. He says there's no room for racial superiority in the gospel of Jesus. And so I need to tell you this. You think you're superior? Your race is superior because you come from the ground of Attica and you're better? No, we're all created by God and we come from the same ancestor. Man, we could learn a lot from that, couldn't we? In our gospel presentation. I don't hear a lot of amen, so I'm going to say that again. We can learn a lot from that in our gospel presentation, can't we? Okay, good. I was going to start a new church if... if I didn't hear an amen that time. And so Paul is saying that there's no room for racism in the gospel. And that God through Jesus is now reuniting his people. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. Before I unpack that, I'll, I'll let you guys know this. Men, the Epicureans believed that the gods had little to no interest in humanity after creating them. Paul's challenging them. He's saying, no, God cares very deeply, and he's closer than any of you realize. He's nearer to us than any. And, and I think that's a good word even for us today. That, because I don't know about you, but there's times in my life when I feel miles away from God. And I'm a pastor, right? Not supposed to have that happen. <laughs> but there's times when I feel like I'm groping for God in, in the dark. And what Paul's doing here in this message is saying, God is nearer than you realize. In fact, it, his presence is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's nearer than you know. You just have to, you just have to pray and, and ask for an awareness of his presence. We need a revelation of his presence, right? 
It's not that he's not there. He feels afar off, but he's not far from any one of us. Not a single one of us. Powerful message that these, these people are hearing. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul here in this verse, he quotes two pagan Greek philosophers and poets, which in itself is interesting. I mean, why didn't he just use the Old Testament scriptures? Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the, the scriptures really well. What is he doing quoting philosophy? In his gospel presentation, why isn't he just reading the Old Testament scriptures? Well, Paul understood this truth, that all truth belongs to God. Everything that's true belongs to God. So he's not, he's, he's not thinking, oh, I just, gotta, I just gotta, where's that Old Testament passage? It's, no, he's saying, I can pull something true that you guys is familiar to you, a term that you, you're thinking about and you're talking about, and, and I can use this truth to, to contextualize the gospel. And he also knew this, that, that arguments are only persuasive if they make sense in the mind of the listener. If he would have quoted the Hebrew scriptures to these Athenians, they would have said, what are you reading from? What are you talking about? That has no authority or place in my life. And so Paul doesn't use scripture in this sermon, although his arguments are thoroughly biblical. They're thoroughly biblical. But instead, he uses points of contact, familiar ideas and terms. He's not compromising or watering down the gospel message here. He's not. He's contextualizing the gospel. He's making it accessible for this, this group of people in Athens who, as he says, are just kind of like, they're worshiping this unknown God. They know he exists, but they don't know anything about him. And what he's really saying by quoting these two Greek philosophers and poets is that, is that we don't create gods in our image. We're created in his image. It's, he quoted one of, the, one of the poets. He says, we are his offspring. And so he's looking around. He's seeing all these temples and shrines and, and statues of all the gods they're worshiping. He's like, you've created all these in your image, but God has created us in his image. He doesn't need any of these things. Think how revolutionary this sounds to these people, their whole way. Verse 30, in the past... He's wrapping up his sermon now. This is his closing. In the, and it'll be my closing too, I promise. <laughs> In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul leaves them with a pretty hefty trio of words. He uses the word repentance, judgment, resurrection, and he just drops the mic and walks back, backs off. And he's, what he's saying here in his closing is you've got to respond to this, Athenians. You've got to break away from your religious structures, become part of the renewed world God's making, repent of your ignorance that once, once overlooked, but it won't fly anymore, because one day we're, we're going to be judged, and it'll be a bigger hot seat than the one you have me on here at Mars Hill, he's saying to them. We're all going to stand before a judge. And, and even though you don't believe in, in resurrection, uh, Jesus disproves that theory. Now, Here's what's most interesting about this. As confrontational as that closing argument was, Athens is one of the few cities that doesn't run Paul out of town. 
And we also learn in Acts 17 that there's only two conversions that are recorded from his sermon here. Uh, there's a member of the council called Dionysus and a woman named Damaris. And so I suppose you could say, oh, see, look, that wasn't very fruitful. That's what you get for quoting Greek philosophy. But I totally disagree with that. I've read commentary that says that. I totally disagree with that. And here's why. I, I strongly disagree with it. Because Athens isn't Berea. It's a different place. It's a different city. But different cultures and different understandings and different ways. See, I believe this, that some soil is tougher to plant in than other soil. And that each, each of these cities that Paul goes to is very unique. And he tailors how he even talks about Jesus from, from city to city, how he presents the gospel, how he, he interacts with these people. And I think we have a lot to learn from this. See, let me go into application mode now, and I'll close my Bible. Let me go into application mode, try to make sense of this. What does this mean for us? Because you're sitting here and you're thinking, this feels like a classroom, Adam. You're showing us maps and talking to us about Greek and uh, Epicurean and Stoic. Well, let, let's, can we flip over to application mode and everybody can wake up and... Okay, good. <laughs> here, all right, good. Yeah, when I, when I, when I, I, I do know you're awake because when we talked, when I asked you to give that amen for that one part, you, you really came through, which really encourages my heart. Uh, I want to say this. The city and region that we live in has unique qualities. A lot of pros and cons, right? For one, pros. This is one of the most beautiful places in the world to live. I'm convinced of it. Geographically, I mean, look out that window. Why are you even listening to me? Just look out the window. And what are you doing? <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? The people here are amazing people. The culture here, amazing. I think in many ways, like I read this about Athens and Paul in Athens, and I'm like, look at those pictures in Athens. Wow, what culture, beauty. I feel like Burlington and Vermont has a lot of that. It's gorgeous. It also has its problems, right? Like it's not a very diverse state. It's an expensive place to live. There's other problems. Also, for me as a pastor, Vermont is always first or second in the least church state in the country. And so, you know, contextualizing the gospel here has its challenges for sure, right? It does. But I believe this, that you're all here and I'm here because God has us here and we love it here. We love the people. We love the culture. We love the geography. And yes, it's distressing when people have the wrong view of who Jesus is. But what a privilege is it for us to be able to contextualize the gospel for them? What a privilege is it for us to reintroduce Jesus to ourselves in this awesome place that we live and help reintroduce Jesus to others? I don't hear any amen, so I might have to find a new church. I don't know what's going on here. But I'm telling you guys, this is, this is one of the most beautiful places to live. The people here are beautiful. The, the culture here is wonderful. I know it's distressing to look around and say, you guys don't understand who Jesus is. But guess what? We need to be reintroduced to Jesus too, continuously. And we, and we need to say, God, you have me here. And I want to reintroduce Jesus to people here. 
Oh, man, yeah. Okay. I, I was about ready to do this. My bag is somewhere. I was going <laughs> to... I'm just teasing. You guys know that. I had a pastor friend of mine call me up a couple of years ago, and I knew him in Bible college, and he's pastoring in another state uh, far away. And he called me up to, to kind of, he heard I was, was in Vermont, and I had planted a church, and he, he was calling me up to kind of ask about the church. And he asked, hey, how's it going in Vermont? And I, I didn't get like a sentence and a half out before he started, he interrupted me, and he just kind of kind of braggadociously started talking about all the conversions he's experiencing. And he said, yeah, we have 17 converts at this outdoor thing event we did last month, and we're going to do another one on Sunday out here, and we're, we're hoping for 12 more converts. And then next month, we've got three more lined up, we're, and we're, we're believing for all these converts. And I was excited partially for what I was hearing, but honestly, part of what I was hearing is just felt like he was speaking a different language than me. I don't know about you guys, but I am so over tallying up conversions and propping them up to feel good about myself and my ministry. I'm just not, I, I'm just not there. What I, what I, what I, I I'm, I'm at this application, I'm just being vulnerable. I'm not here to tally conversions. I'm here because I've been converted. And I can't help but share the good news of Jesus. Guys, this is good news. Paul's in Athens, and he's, he's, he's not there to tally up. He's just two. He's like, I can't help myself. I've got good news. These people, he said, what a wonderful culture this is. Look, I'm a little distressed by all the, all the false uh, idols. And, but, but I'm going to take time to, to be with these people and share this good news that I have because it's good news, and that's it. I don't want to. I don't want to 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 pastor a church and live my life as a Christian just to like put notches on my belly. God, seventeen conversions last year in our church. I got a picture of them. I could show you. No, I'm super thrilled when people convert to faith in Jesus. I, I love it, but not because not because that in and of itself. It's because this is really good news. And so yesterday we had a partnership party, and we. We had some food, and we celebrated some ways that we were able to reintroduce Jesus as a church this past year. And then we envisioned together and dreamed and imagined, what are some ways that we could reintroduce Jesus to ourselves this year and reintroduce Jesus to others this year? What are some ways we could do that? And it was a really wonderful time, and I want to extend that invitation to us this morning in a way. I hope that... that you guys will be good Berean-type people and just dig into Acts 17 this week. Just kind of study that. Look into yourself. Say, hey, I, don't, I don't know if Adam's talking true. I, I need to go Acts 17 and read this a couple times. I hope you do. And I hope you ask yourself the question and pray about God being not far, not far from any one of us. So I, I'm guessing that there's some folks here in this room, because I've been there, and you're saying, man, I feel like God's miles away from me. And I didn't even know if I could come to church today because I just feel so far from God. It just feels like an exercise that I'm doing. I want you to know, I want to echo Paul's word, God is nearer than you know. He's not far from any one of us. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to have John come up actually and close our service in prayer in just a minute. But if he doesn't pray it, I'll jump in and pray it, but I think he'll pray it. <laughs> I want to pray that we get a new awareness for his presence. 
in our lives, that we can be reintroduced to Jesus again and again. And also, I want to challenge you guys to pray this week as you read Acts 17. Ask yourself the question, how how can I reintroduce Jesus to myself this week? And how can I contextualize the gospel and reintroduce Jesus to these beautiful, wonderful people I live with and work with and who are neighbors and friends? Can we do that? All right. John, why don't you come on up and close us in prayer? And the worship team, come on up. We'll sing one song after uh, he's done praying for us. Let's, uh, let's respond to what we've heard. Um, Jesus, we lift our hearts right now and... Um, we say to you that we want to reintroduce you here in Vermont and also to ourselves because you're good. You're just good. God, those of us who know you um, have seen you do amazing things in our lives. You've comforted us when we were hurting You've celebrated when uh, we're rejoicing. God, you've been a father to the fatherless. God, you've been the strength of the weak when we're weak. And God, you're just good, so we want to make you known. Um, and Lord, for, uh, for those of for those of us and for me, God, uh, when we don't want to make you known, we, I think we want to want to make you known, Lord. So we pray that your spirit would work in us. Um, God, we thank you for the place that you've planted us uh, here in, in Vermont. Beautiful people, compassionate people, loving people, beautiful space, your creation. Um, shown off all around you, uh, all around us, showing us who you are. And um, God, we pray that you would use us, um, use us to show you to people who are made in your image, how beautiful they are. Use us to listen uh, where, um, where sin is and where sin has hurt, where the fall has affected us, God, where it's broken relationships, where it's broken people, families, children. God, we, um, we pray that you would uh, let us be your hands, your feet, your ears, and Lord, that you would change our hearts. I feel like that's what, what we need. That's what I need is a heart change to do your work here. Thanks for Paul. Thanks for the wisdom you give us. We pray that you give us Paul wisdom. Um, and, and just knowing your character, God, we think you're going to answer this prayer, Lord. We trust you to do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.